I am unashamed. What about you? So welcome back to the Unashamed podcast. I noticed, because uh, we record a couple of podcasts in one day, and I've noticed, Zach, that you put a coat on. Uh <laughs> Yeah, got a little, in between the two podcasts, are you a little bit nippy there in North Carolina? Was it you're not heating your studio? What's going on there? I got a chill. It's a, I, I've, it's a, there's a draft in here somewhere, and I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, the temperature looks right, but it's not right because I'm cold. Well, let me give you some advice here because last night, yeah. I mean, my wife, she's she's just building fires, and you know, I got enough wood, I thought, for the whole year, but I, at this pace, I'm not real sure because. <laughs> And she's talking about, you know, getting somebody to come in and seal up all the windows and doors. She's like, I mean, I just cannot get warm. So I just thought it does feel really cold in here because it's cold. It's unseasonably cool in Louisiana the last three days. So I just walked downstairs and look and there's a door we have to the outside wide yeah. open i'm pretty sure it's been open for three days because missy and i never go down <laughs> oh man oh i get so it so i came Trust up me. i said fix the draft problem and she said what'd you do i said i closed the Close door, the door. <laughs> yeah leave your doors open it'll, it'll cool you off on a cool it will floor. cool you down I, I, every I mean, time this is our big dilemma right now so we put the i got the temperature downstairs on 72 heat it's on heat. I go upstairs. They've got the, the, my kids live upstairs. I live downstairs. I go upstairs. They've got it on 68. Cool. So they've got the AC on <laughs> upstairs with the heat on downstairs. And I'm, I mean, I'm just blowing a gasket. And this has happened like several times, but you know what no, that's called? You're not blowing a gasket. You're, you're, you're running into a pretty good. That's what I was going to say. Phil's making <laughs> a gesture with his hand. Money will just buy yeah. you and Money. warm you right up. Well, we were doing the <laughs> yeah. same thing. We're just we're building a fire only to build a wall of the air that's coming in from a door being open. Yeah, yeah. that's what well, I try to tell the kids. kids. I'm like, say, you got to. We had to go through like a physics lesson. I'm like, what? Let me ask you a question. You you put a fire. Where does the Where's the heat go when you have a fire? And they're like, what do you mean? Around you? No, 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 no. What does heat do? It rises. Like, it, it, like, it rises? I was like, so if you're above me and I have a fire below you, I'm paying for that fire. You realize that. I'm paying money. <laughs> so I put money in an in a account every month that pays for the fire to burn downstairs. And the heat goes above us. And the, where are you at? And they're like, above us? I said, that's right. So where's the heat? And I'm like, so but you've got it on cool. If you want to cool the upstairs, then go turn the heat off downstairs. You don't, you don't put the AC on. I mean, this is just you know, basic one hundred and one. Of course, part of the problem is, and your kids may be experiencing this, is Lisa and I. We like to be uh, warm during the day, yeah. But at night, we like to sleep cooler. So, so a lot of times, the house will warm up, but then I'll have to either turn the heat way down or off. Or sometimes even turn the air. I had to do it last night. Yeah. So it's really interesting. But the, now I just got back from Europe, and apparently in Europe, you go and stay in a hotel. They make it where you can't turn the air conditioner on at all. So it's just hot all the time. But why? Do, in, why do they even have one now? I don't know. And it's but I they it control was, it. They just they control, control it. it. I guess it's climate change. Well, I, don't I know, mean, look, here's the deal. I'm okay. Like if you at, at nighttime. Look, 
turn it off. But but here, well, here's the rule. The rule is that during the winter months in North Carolina, that upstairs unit should never ever be turned on. That's that's the rule that I'm trying to instill into yeah, my. Yeah, you're kid. right. You just don't touch it. You stick it. Whatever you want to happen happens downstairs, and then that controls everything. But uh, anyway, sorry, that's not what you. Yeah, I'm wearing a coat though. Basically, yeah. I'm a little, so little so another thing, Dad, I forgot to mention this from my from my trip. So we were traveling up the Danube River, which is a, a beautiful river in Europe. A lot of lock systems on it, and because you're passing through countries. It's kind of unusual because, you know, when you get on a river in the United States, you're in the same country yeah. no matter where you wind up. But in, in Europe, because all these little countries are right on top of each other, you're going in a new country. And so they got all these lock systems. But one thing I did notice because I was I was looking and I and I saw a lot of it um, is there were a lot of ducks on the Danube River. Really? Uh, yeah. First thing I saw was a big group of ringnecks, probably. I don't know, 50 or 60 of them that flew by. And, you know, of course, I, you know, we're just cruising up the river. So I get to look at all these. And then I saw a lot of mallards. I saw some pintails. So it's just the same ducks that we had because I didn't know. But then I saw something really interesting. I saw some ducks. I, I, they look like an Weijin. And, and then I heard one, so I knew they were. But I had my binoculars, so I was getting a good close-up look. The Weijin in Europe on the Danube River, instead of having the green tint, the males in their head, it's brown. It's not all brown. And so I looked it up, and sure enough, it's just a different, a little bit different version of the Weijin that we have. Yeah, but I, I thought it was they interesting. Call them the Eurasian Weijin, or is that what it is? Yeah, yeah I've seen them before. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I'd never seen that before. But it was really interesting. I saw a lot of ducks. Yeah, we're still under a a severe, unmatched by any drought so far, Louisiana. This year is the driest Louisiana's ever been. So how did the – I never asked you how the season ended because right now you're in the split, right? Yeah, the first few days were spectacular, a lot of gadwall and teal, and then it just died. I think all the ducks went back north – course then it got cold we're in the split now but we don't have a lot of water so if you hunt pretty much every day like we do you know after a while the ducks are run like, off everything hey let's get out of here <laughs> which is basically <laughs> what happened we had one good day the last seven or eight days and i and there's an asterisk by it because i mean the days the i would say the first six eight days we were averaging 20 ducks a day and then the last six or eight days, it was average 1.5. I mean, it was kind of like deer hunting. If you yeah. shot one, you said, hey, I got him. But there was <laughs> one day in there when nobody wanted to go. And we had, uh, it was me and Phil and Jay. And I think we had. Uh, Jersey Joe was there. Jersey Joe. And I think we had Sadie's husband. Yeah, he was there. Christian. Christian. And so. You realize in that moment that the middle of the blind is not going to produce much because Christian and Jersey Joe are kind of newbies to the hunting world. And although they they learned from Cy, because Cy came on opening day, that all you need to really do is shoot three times and then just say, yeah, we got them. (laughs) (laughs) So they're pretty good at claiming. So we had an interesting day that became legendary. And we only shot nine ducks, but it was by far one of the best days of those six or eight. But I will say, 
It was one of the greatest days ever for one Jay Stone, who is married to your daughter, Al. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it kind of took over my job at Duck Commander, and he's kind of my right-hand man just about a lot of things, you know, so... He uh he just had now that. his main job is kind of taking care of properties and you know our our hunting properties and all that. Yeah, so actually, how the hunt went? We one Woody come over. Uh, I think Phil shot him. Great shot. So we had we we we're not going to be shut out. And then the next three hours, we saw less than ten ducks that were not wood ducks, and we only saw a handful of wood ducks. We saw like one teal. One mallard drake, we saw two gadwalls and a few wood ducks. That's basically all we saw. And so about nine o'clock, you know, Phil has the, because Phil is the most optimistic duck hunter in the world. At nine o'clock, he asks a question that caused everyone there to laugh uncontrollably. He said, well, what do you think about tomorrow? Tomorrow. And he started naming holes that we could go to that are in my vision. Like we could go up to that second island. Well, you know, I looked up at the second island or we could, you know, we could go to the first island. I'm looking, I'm, I'm like, there's no, why would we leave, you know, and go 300 yards over here? There's nothing here. It's a ghost town, but Phil was being optimistic, but there was one hole we couldn't see, which is behind the blind which is where the few ducks we saw go. So I said, well, let me go back there and just look and sneak up there and see if there's any ducks there. So I take off in the P-Row, and I get back there in the woods, get out of the P-Row, I sneak up there. Well, I look at the little opening there, and I, it's like I had to adjust my eyes because I'm looking at a mallard drake. And I remembered that we had seen one earlier, and I thought, there's that mallard drake. And so about the time I'm processing this, he sees me. And instead of just getting up and flying, which is what they usually do, he just starts like swimming away hurriedly, looking back every once in a while like, I don't know what that is because I was stealth. (laughs) I had face paint on. Just in case whatever that is is dangerous, let me get out of here. But I was still in the brush. So I just made a decision. I thought, there's no ducks here. I'm fixed to try to shoot that Mallard Drake, you know, then, cause I was thinking I come back to the blind. Hey, I got him, you know, and yeah. it was one of very few Mallards we saw. So I just took off. Of course I'm waiting. It's about knee deep. I just took off running and he started swimming faster. Well, at that moment I thought maybe there's something wrong with him, but I was gaining ground on him and there was nothing wrong with him. He just didn't want to fly, which is why we weren't seeing any ducks. So he jumps up, and he's right at the range of where I thought, I don't know. But I thought I'd try him, and I just pulled way out in front of him, shot. It was like 1,001, and he just, poof! I mean, he folded. And I was, I actually let out an audible, (gasps) I got him! (laughs) Beautiful mallard. But when I shot, I heard a few other ducks get up out of the brush. Well, then... For the next few minutes while I'm going to get the Mallard Drake, I hear the blind shooting, like boom, you know, or boom. Blind is facing yeah. like this. Well, he's got his fist out. Stone was on the far right side, yeah. and the ducks 
you were flushing from your shot at the mallard. Which was not on purpose. We were not trying to. They were coming to... by, look. <laughs> yeah. They were coming like this. Because that's against the Stones law. right there. Yeah. We were not rallying birds. No. And, and look, <laughs> the, the re- only reason this worked is because these ducks did not want to fly. So instead of, like, I mean, I just fired a gunshot because I'm way away from them. But these ducks actually got up and thought, oh, there's some ducks here. And, and they, they, they weren't, like, flying way high. They, they literally were checking out their spread. No one so, could shoot but stone because the ducks were coming right here. They were coming on his within side. Within shotgun range. Exactly. So I hear a few shots, but very few. And so I get to the blind, and there's this pile of ducks. Because I have one, but I'm like, where did all these ducks come from? Because I thought there wasn't enough shots fired to make sense here. Because you're not obviously hitting one every time you shoot in a normal hunting situation. Well, they start telling the story. A teal came out, the one teal we had seen before. Jay, boom, got him. He was on his side. Uh, well, three gadwalls came by, which we had only seen two, and Phil shoots one, and Jay shoots the other two. Yep. So they got those three. Yeah, bump, bump, bump. Well, then a wood duck came out. Bump, Jay shot him. Well, then two wood ducks came out, and Jay raises up and in one shot kills them, Kill both. them both. That was the story. Well, I started adding this Neither up. Either one of them were crippled. They were just dead. And so I started adding this up. It was the first time in the history uh, that I've been on a duck hunt where we killed more than one or two. We shot nine ducks, and we only fired eight shots. And Jay <laughs> killed his limit, six ducks. He had three wood ducks, a teal, and two gadwalls, and he only shot five times. <laughs> and we only That's saw impressive. about 11. And the young bucks were just looking at what was transpiring, saying, good night. <laughs> you know what they were thinking, Dad? Maybe one day, maybe yeah. one day they could be me. The That's consequences of that is Jay has not been able to get his head through a door since. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, well, oh, boys, man. I was conserving shells today. There I was. <laughs> So we're always uh, um, really proud of Unashamed Nation, just the way you guys support us. And um, that hasn't, I mean, that's been seen more clearly through the blind, maybe than anything we've done so far. Uh, Dad, I I think you can say now safely, because you weren't sure about it going in, that it definitely was worth it to make the movie. Would you agree? I was shocked, to tell you the truth about it. On the numbers. And it was such a good shot because it's it's changed a lot of people's lives. Now it's available, of course, on digital. And, Zach, that's probably a good thing, right? Because I know a lot of people have reached out to us wanting to use it in devotionals and, you know, uh, house churches and church settings and Sunday school classes. So now you can actually have it yourself. Oh, yeah. I get calls all the time. Hey, what's that? Give me the lines from this part of the movie or, or clips. or I get, I get those calls all the time. So now, yeah, you can you can purchase a digital copy on the Blaze. That's exactly right. Uh, you can own it. Uh, you can use it however you want to uh, to continue to further the kingdom, which was our, our idea by making it. Uh, you don't have to subscribe to Blaze TV. You just go to blazetv.com slash the blind uh, to purchase it. Uh, on digital and then watch it instantly and have it available. Uh, also, if you buy now, they're going to give you a code for 20% off all unashamed 
in the woods and the blind merchandise only in blaze tv stores you get some really cool stuff and save you a little money for some christmas gifts as well so go to blaze tv.com slash the blind to watch the blind today he had no answer when i said stone i was watching you that was pretty fancy shooting and that's the only he wouldn't say a word. No, no. Well, he, he in that he was moment just standing tall, you know. Yeah, he, in that slow. moment, he was acting like he had been there before, yeah. which he had not. <laughs> but since then, <laughs> I've heard this story a half a dozen times. So there I was, you know, boom, boom. I knew I was had a perfect <laughs> shot record, and then the last time, wouldn't you know it, I lined them up. And killed two, got two and one, two birds in one shot. So well, the kill one thing going for five. The moral of that story, Jace, is as you mentioned, the middle of the blind. So a lot of people claim they do that when everybody's shooting, but very few times you get the opportunity because you're the only man shooting that you get to yeah. prove what you're saying. That doesn't happen very often, I will say. Well, I told my good friend Barrett in Kansas that who I hunt with. uh Usually every year I take a trip up there. And he now he's hunted his whole life and is a great shot. He said, Jace, when I went down there with y'all, he said the anticipation. And when I raised up and was the only one shooting, he said my hands were shaking so bad because I knew <laughs> if I don't pull this off, I am never going to hear the end of this story. He said it, it, it just did something to me. And he's like, I realized in that moment, I don't want to hunt with y'all. The pressure was more than he could bear. <laughs> well, it so, reminds me, it reminds me of the scene and they show it quite a bit in the tour. I was walking through the other day and it came on and, and it just, it was such a good scene where y'all were hunting someplace and you needed one duck to complete the full limits for everybody. And I would say two to 3000 ducks piled in, just kept coming and kept coming. And everybody was even kind of chuckling on camera because so many deaths were coming. We only needed one. And finally somebody said to Billy Red Dog Phillips, WE now, you just cut one duck and he and he raises up and these three thousand ducks they start getting up and they're just everywhere in front of him and he's boom, 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 and nothing fell. <laughs> three thousand ducks, point blank range. He misses three times and he just falls out. He lay on the on the dirt <laughs> next to the water and he would just he, he was he was sick. Yeah, it, everybody it just, was watching, and, then, and Phil and, and then Benny, everybody got so tickled. Well, Phil and Benny and laughed ben. so hard because we were filming, and I thought, "Well, he ruined that scene." I mean, that, he'll <laughs> never. And so We said, "Don't run that," and Phil said, "Oh, we're running it," <laughs> and they did. And it, and it is to this day one of my probably top three wow. scenes in all of the Duckman videos because you know we know Bill so well, we know how much that hurt, and then to have to get you know to watch it over and over, it was a lot of fun. But it reminds me of that pressure. So yeah, all right. So and I guess season cranks back up next week. Is that right? Or- yeah, next day we still got a couple days of of waiting. We're trying to get some. We're water. not seeing many ducks. No, we're trying to get. We need water. We'll send a scout out. You going to scout it, Jason? Yeah, I'll scout it. I was actually going to go to Barrett's and hunt, but he put this week down. I put next week down. Tomorrow, Jason, you got to remember, tomorrow, 
the weather report said it's 100% it will rain tomorrow. Yeah, but it's been my experience. Today's 60 that there's a rule you duck hunters should live by. Never trust a weatherman. <laughs> Ever. Yeah, it's kind of like. Miss, right. They miss it a lot. I, I, I dipped my toe in the area of politics when I heard the president say it was the cheapest Thanksgiving dinner since whenever, you know, it was the fourth cheapest ever in our country, you know, since seven. Whether people are saying right I, now. I spent $2,000. This is the driest year ever recorded in the great state of Louisiana. No, I know. So what I'm saying is sometimes it's you got to stick your head outside and see if it's actually raining. Yeah, but no matter to my what point, prognosticate. yeah, when you're feeding seven people for Thanksgiving week and you're getting up into $2,000, I don't see how that can be the most least expensive dinner. It's one of those oh. where a, a, days a politician is telling you one thing, but you're in the store oh. buying the groceries and it's like, nope. I heard that yeah. and I just turned the TV off. And Missy's like, what happened? Well, a lot of times when they calculate inflation, they leave out um, one of the metrics. Uh, they leave out food, housing, and and fuel. And I'm like, well, yeah, which is pretty you, much the main <laughs> stuff, right? That's where the money goes. <laughs> Everything's yeah. That, inflation looks great if you leave out these uh, these these the know, things food. people are spending all their money yeah, on. Yeah, stuff yeah. Is skyrocketing. Yeah. Well, in that vein, we'll get back to Luke 19, because this is one of the more misunderstood chapters in the Bible, and I hope you've stayed with us through this. But Yeah, and I think to reset it, Jace is right. So we're in Luke 19. Uh, We start in verse 11, and Jace read us all the way through the end of the chapter, because all these tie together. Uh, And Jace did a really good job of showing you that big picture and what Jesus was saying. But we didn't get into a lot of the specifics of these three separate things that are mentioned here. The first one was the parable and we didn't really get a chance to talk about what, what, what is he talking about? Because, you know, we kind of dealt with the timing issue of which becomes the kind of controversial part of it, but what is he trying to say? And to me, Jace is right. I've heard, I've heard people do sermons so much on this about, you know, money how you handle your money, the expectations of that. And I, and I, I really believe that's not at all what this is about. I did want to mention, I didn't mention on the podcast before, there's a parable in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, that's, that's presented by Matthew in a different setting, but it's very similar to this parable. And so scholars go back and forth. Is, he, is it the same story? He's just telling it to his disciples. Is it a different story? There are quite a few differences in some of the specifics of the story. My my take on it is, because that other one is about the, they're called 10 talents, but it's kind of a similar situation where he's saying, you know, this is what you have to use. What do you do with it? And then, of course, two out of three do pretty well, and then one seems to not do anything. So I think it's one of those, what's he trying to say? And since we kind of established the time frame of this last time, that we believe he's laying out the kingdom that we, that is coming soon. It's going to happen after he dies, and we see it ushered in uh, with the day of Pentecost. And then we see 40 years of people having an opportunity to believe and then the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. So we think that's a big component as well as then the end of time. So what's he saying to these guys about they were, they began to kill the messengers. 
Well, my point was when I read like verse 12, when he said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. I mean, obviously he's talking about himself in, in, a, Correct. in a parable. But it says, so he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minutes, put this money to, to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Well, who are the people that, that don't want him to be king. And I think in this context, and he's going to mention them again when he says at the his, end, his tri- well, in his triumphal entry, when they said in verse 38, when the people are his disciples are giving praise to God and they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, You need to rebuke your disciples. Well, what is the problem? They're not acknowledging him as king. So he was obviously given a picture of the Jewish nation in this context about not recognizing Jesus as the son of God, the coming Messiah, the king of kings. And so he was saying, put this, what I've shown you, put this to work. All the, the signs that he has done, all the miracles everything he said, all the fulfillment of prophecy, put that to work because this is happening. And so when he, you know, I believe that when he was resurrected and the reason I'm making a big point about recognizing him, the whole point of this parable is when you recognize Jesus as king, you're going to put whatever resources you have to work in making other people see that. And whatever the reason is, it's not just that, you know, maybe the Pharisees didn't recognize him as king. There were other people that weren't recognizing him as king either. But look, fast forward to today, the same things happened. They were putting all their hope and trust in the actual temple, which he gets to in verse 45, you know, speaking of the the Pharisees. But I think here's where you got to just realize the the context of where he's at what he's speaking to the prophecies he's fulfilling everything he's done up at the, up until this point to show people that the king has come god is making his dwelling among us the word became flesh and are you recognizing that i mean that is the point in in my opinion i mean you can make and- a practical application about today you know, if Jesus is king and you recognize him, you're going to have these same fruits in your life via the Holy Spirit. You're going to do have the resources and the gifts God's given you to use. It's just inevitable, I think, is the point. So, Jace, you know, it's interesting because this uh, podcast is, uh, you know, we study the Bible. And it's amazing how the Bible uh, deals with so many issues in our lives. And w- one of the things that... Uh, one of our sponsors, Liver Health Formula, talks about is the condition of the liver. And you found a verse that I was not familiar with that way back in Proverbs, the Bible talks about the liver. What's what's that verse you got? Well, I mean, I've used this many times. You know, in life, you're to keep away from relationships that can be toxic or harmful. You know, he makes an illustration. It's like you look up and the next thing you know, you're like a deer taking a step before an arrow pierces his liver. 
Well, I know the liver is important, or he wouldn't have brought it up. You don't want anything to happen to that, because that could be not good for your health. Exactly. And I love it. And that's exactly what uh, our friends at Liver Health Formula tell us, is because one in three Americans are now living with sluggish, fatty liver. Uh, It's when you put on too many pounds, you lose energy, and all of a sudden you got these issues uh, that come about physically, kind of like that deer that got pierced with the liver. Uh, so we want you to be better prepared uh, for 2024, have more energy, and liver health formula can help you. It's helped me. Uh, I took the product. My liver enzymes are in much better shape. I have more energy. Uh, they have 11 powerful botanicals. They help recharge, protect your liver. So get it today, and you also get a free bottle of blood sugar formula to reduce your sugar cravings. So go to getliverhelp.com slash unashamed you get that free bonus gift and a chance to make your liver better and to have a better year coming up so that's get liverhelp.com slash unashamed i agree jace and you made this point when you were reading through it and i think it is the core of what he was trying to say in the parable itself if you are a servant who believes in the king then the natural reaction should be with whatever you do in that kingdom is there should be a multiplication, growth, uh, moving forward mindset. And so I think that's the point he's ultimately making. Obviously, if you don't believe in him at all, in fact, you don't even want to accept him as king, there will be no growth and multiplication for you because you don't believe in him. What he gets to here that's a little stickier for anybody, I think, in the kingdom is that you just sit on your hands and do nothing which was the point with the third guy who who had a gift from, from God and from the king in this situation and did nothing, which which tells you a lot about the mindset. Did, did, were they, did they really believe he was the king? And so I, I thought about all the other parables. Remember the parable of the sower back in Luke 8, um, which was the idea about whenever the, the God, he said the gospel is the seed that goes out. And then he talked about the things that happen that, you know, three out of the four, something comes along and the seed doesn't grow. It does. There's no fruit that comes from it. And then the fourth one was the person who said, I accept this. And then I do what naturally comes when I accept the king. And he says it's a hundredfold in, in that case. But the, and you see this all throughout the New Testament. Uh, John 4 talks about it, this idea of harvesting, reaping, and sowing. John 15, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. I mean, there's this consistent kingdom mindset that whenever we have the Spirit of God that lives in us, naturally we should grow, bear fruit, impact the world. I mean, all that should be natural to us as kingdom dwellers. So I think that's, I've always felt like that was the point. And even the Matthew 25 uh, parable, which is a little bit different, and it was specifically toward the disciples, is saying the same thing. You're about to have 40 years to impact this world and to try to save as many people, especially from the Jewish people first, later the Gentiles. And I think that's really what he's talking about. Yeah. We think about, you think about the rich young ruler too. I mean, uh, like it's when he's asking about how do I, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And um, Jesus does give him an action, right? He says, you know, basically sell what you have and come follow me. I think that one of the, one of the downsides, and I understand that I'm grateful for what's been termed the gospel centered movement. I think it, yes, it is. The gospel is central 
um, and, and it is God who accomplishes salvation in us and all of that 100% agree. But there there are these verses that talk about us doing stuff. And I think the that's why we, when we preach the gospel, it's preach the gospel and the kingdom. And the kingdom, it is going to have action. It is going to have, you're going to see things happening in, in the kingdom. And I think that what you see in this parable is the mentality that I'm going to, I'm not going to be active and I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, it's, it's a negative view of the kingdom that I'm just going to consolidate everything in, protect, hold, you know, not go out and take risk and build and invest. And, and it's, it's painting a picture here that when you are participating in God's kingdom, you're actually out there doing stuff. Now here's the caveat. Your work is not to accomplish and earn anything. So this is not like, okay, you did good. So based on your merit, now I'm going to give you this. It's not that. It's not a workspace system. It's not the legalism of the past that we all kind of came out of in the churches that we grew up in. It's not that. It's not you do for God and then you earn it and then God will give you what you earn. It is not that. It's God's grace. Grace alone. But when you experience God's grace alone, that should manifest itself in action and in work. And that's James's point, you know, that faith yeah. without works is dead. He's explaining that real faith is going to have a tangible expression of that faith in what we do. In this particular servant here, what happened is he, his faith did not transcend into action, into work, and, and quite the opposite, it retreated. So in this, as we're moving into Jesus establishing his kingdom here, we actually are seeing a key morsel, a key part, a key uh, idea of the kingdom, that with God's kingdom, when it, when it comes, it's here, and it's not in its full fruition, but we are actually participating in God building it. We are, we, we should be seeing it expanding just like these, the, 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 the minus should have expanded, right? That's what, that's right. what should happen in God's economy. Exactly. Yes, I think, I think another point on this is you remember when in Matthew 20, where one of the moms comes to Jesus and has this idea and you know she was put up to this by two of his disciples who said hey can one of my sons sit on your right and sit on your left in the kingdom of God and then Jesus goes on this sermon about I didn't come to be served but to serve and his point is taking this parable of the ten minutes that Jesus has given them an idea that human beings on earth who recognize Jesus as king and surrender to him, they're going to become him on the earth. Yeah. Doing what he did. Jesus didn't just sit around and do nothing. I mean, he worked from daylight to dark and dark to daylight, not only praying to God and having this, this relationship aspect of it, but helping the the untouchable and bringing people together and driving out demons. And so when you read something like first Peter two, you really see this vision later on that Peter finally figured out, you know, this is him doing this ministry for a while. And when he writes in verse four of chapter two, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God, precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ and you tie in with what paul said when it says our spiritual act of worship 
is the sacrifices that we do on a daily basis trying to point other people to the king. And so then Peter says this, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Well, Jesus himself says that same quote in the next chapter, in chapter 21, or two chapters later, in verse 42, where he says, Having, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So to go back to First Peter 2, when you get to verse 9, it says, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his wonderful light. He goes on in verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I mean, I think it's all the same things. He's just preparing them for what's fixing to happen, and they're going to be persecuted but they're pointing people to the king no matter what. And it's going to be a life filled with service and sacrifice. And most of them died for the cause. And they died for the cause. They literally became just like he did. They gave their lives for other people. And, and it's interesting, Jason. I'm so glad you brought up First and Second Peter because to Zach's point about the kingdom, it's really interesting there was an urgency, especially when you get to Second Peter. And we studied First and Second Peter last year on the podcast. And remember, this is the same guy that preached the first sermon, what would have been about thirty year, thirty three years earlier, on the day of Pentecost. And when you see Peter at the end of his life, because he says that that he realizes he's at the end. Paul said the same thing. Remember when he said, "I'm being poured out." When he told Timothy, "Like a drink offering." And isn't it interesting that the two main guys that the Almighty and Jesus together used to reach the world in that period of time when then this whole thing was finally going to launch after AD 70, both died within a year or two of each other right before AD 70. And so this idea, this urgency was there, which I think Jesus' point is here, even in this parable, that you've got you're on the clock to get this thing right and to accept me. And there's going to come a time where hard hearts w- will not accept me. And so I think it's really interesting that when you look across the span of what we see in the New Testament, we're looking at this period of time that Jesus was pointing to. That same passage that you had mentioned um, in uh, was a second Peter about the cornerstone. Um, Jesus also references that. I, I brought this up in the previous podcast. I didn't read it, but I, I referenced it, um, which is in the same time period of what we're, where we're at in Luke's account. Um, he brought he, he he brings this up. Jesus does when he gives the parable of the of the tenants in Mark twelve, and he says, "What then will the owner of the vineyard do?" And it's kind of this. Uh, this is when the prophets came and and the. Uh, and they sent, you know, they basically killed what, the one that God had sent. And um, he said, what, what will he do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. So the idea here is, and this is so key to understanding the eschatological kingdom that we're talking about here, that as it comes, it's 
it is multi-ethnic. It's Jew and Gentile. But what is he? What's the idea here in Mark twelve? Is that he came to these people and they rejected him, which they did reject all the prophets. Haven't you read uh, this passage of scripture? This is Jesus talking here, and this is the and this is out of Psalms one eighteen that he quotes, and, the, and he quotes the same thing that Peter did. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The chief priests and the teachers. So he quotes. He quotes exactly what we've been talking about, which is also quoted in, I think, Ephesians two, when it's talking about this bringing a Jew and Gentile together. That's why the Bible says there's no distinction. And the New Testament said there's no distinction, Jew nor Greek, uh, male nor female, in God's kingdom. What you're seeing is this great leveling. It's a. It is like all men. It's and it was always the vision that God would build a multi ethnic kingdom. But you're seeing all of this coming to fruition, and it's starting with these parables, but it's building up into this moment where Jesus is is going to is going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to turn over the tables in the temple. The, he's going to prophesy of the destruction of the temple. He's going to he's already claimed that he is the temple that you. And then that temple's coming down. But Jesus eventually he'll be destroyed. His body will be hung on a cross. That temple will be killed but God will raise up and reconstruct that temple in three days. And that temple, Jesus Christ himself will become the cornerstone upon which the whole thing is built. Then we're going to be grafted in Gentiles and Jews alike grafted in to this new multi-ethnic kingdom. Yeah. And I think that's his point. So when it says they thought that the kingdom was going to come at once, it's this idea of, Oh, and then we can just sit on your right and left and uh, Mm -hmm. just, but he's like, no, now I'm gonna leave. You know, he starts going through. A king goes to a distant land, and then he then he doesn't return. And I want you to go to work. You know, until I come back. So you're like, why is he doing that? Because they were thinking this is a snap of the fingers. Not unlike a lot of people who have this kingdom coming at a later time. Now they're sitting around just waiting. And his point is. No, it kind of goes back to what Paul said in, in Ephesians, which is beautiful about how we're saved by grace and it's the gift of God. But he gets down to the end and he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He has a, a job for us as humans to reflect the image of God to other people. I mean, that, that's what we're here. You think of Paul when he said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. But that's right after he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so that's what Jesus was accomplishing by destroying death itself and forgiving us our sins. So another modern day uh, illustration that you see where I think people miss is our churches become just about what he's done in our lives as far as, you know, atonement and cleaning up our lives. And so it becomes about all the the past old story about how bad I used to be, but God redeemed me. And so at some point you're wanting to hear, so what are you doing now? Why why did he, why did he rescue you? Why did he clean you up? Why did he give you hope of living forever? And they're like, what do you mean? No, he has a job for you. This, we're, we're now to point people to the king and not just yeah. tell how bad you were. I mean, that's was what I think he was trying to get the crowd 
to realize to this is and a, not to and, and to be to clarify we got in this conversation this is actually jason and i's conversation in the last before the last podcast on the phone we were talking about nt right and which we need to have on the podcast at some point that would be interesting um get him i'll be, bring the popcorn bring the popcorn <laughs> we're gonna say so if anybody knows nt right ask him if he wants to come hang out with a bunch of rednecks and uh talk to us but but um but you know it's with the controversy around NT Wright, um, and I, we could ask him about this if he ever comes on, is that he's downplaying atonement. He's downplaying the atonement. He's saying, oh, and I've heard him say stuff like the, like recognizing the atonement, but then, but there's more. And um, I don't think we can downplay the atonement, but I will say this that meaning the payment of sin, like we, it is paid for, and we need to because that is the means. But it's not only about our justification. You know, it's not only about just getting saved. There is this whole thing about what about my life now? Like I'm saved, I'm forgiven, but there is another part of salvation in the Bible called sanctification. That's right. And so what about my life now? And um, Francis Schaeffer in uh, his book, True Spirituality, which is kind of a, a great book if you want to read about what does it mean, sanctification mean, he, he writes about this. But he, he gives this analogy or this story I thought was pretty funny. He was like, can you imagine if you have you know the old days when you had the you open your wallet and the, you could unfold all the pictures you guys you guys remember that so back in the day we didn't have iPhones so and it, when we show baby pictures it's like you have this wallet and you and you put your pictures in there and unfold them out to show your friends or whatever he said can you imagine if every time you got around your friends you just pulled out those baby pictures and you said, this is the day I was born. Oh, this is whenever, yeah, you know, this is when I, you know, my first feeding and, and, and all, like every day of your life, every time you got around somebody, all you ever talked about was your birthday, the day you were born and what that was like as a newborn baby. He said, eventually people would be like, man, there's something psychologically wrong with you. <laughs> like, like, yeah, that was great, man. That was very important for you because without your birth, you know, you wouldn't be here, but man, it's time to move on. You're 45 years old. It's, you know, you can't like, we can't just hang out there all the time. And I, and that, and that's kind of what I think it's like. It's like we hang out at the birth. We hang out at the new birth. We hang out about our sins being forgiven. And that is all true. And that is all necessary. And that is of the utmost importance because it's our entry point into the kingdom. But then there is this whole other thing that Jesus, John 6 says, Jesus died for the life of the world. So what is that part? We need to talk about that part of what does it mean to live for Christ? That's the whole point of Romans 6, by the way. Romans 6, we teach it. We use it a lot to talk about baptism, but really Romans 6 is about you're raised to what? To live a new life. And a lot about Romans 6 is not just about justification. It's about the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit it's the way we live, the new life, the new the kingdom that we're a part of. And I think that that is one of the that is where the power is at to transform people and to transform a culture is to say, yes, you can be forgiven. But you can all there. Also, God is not just saving you from sin. He's saving you to life in him. So, Zach, your point is funny that this popped into my brain when you were telling that story. You just described the plot of The Fugitive. Remember The Fugitive with Harrison Ford was the doctor? and It's been a while. but I, It's I, been a while. Know. And so Tommy Lee Jones is the guy trying to catch him. And when he finally gets him cornered up, he thinks, he says, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. Because, you know, he, he was just trying to catch him, right? Yeah. And so then he jumps off out of a pipe and goes down the river. And at the end of the movie, after he goes back and finds the person who really did kill his wife, 
he tells uh, the fugitive, he says, I know you didn't kill your wife. And Harrison Ford said, I thought you didn't care. And he said, well, don't tell anybody. And it was really interesting because the point is when you're just running and you don't have a point, he's like, I don't care. But when you prove that your life did mean something and you found the person that killed him, all of a sudden he cared. And I think it's the same thing with us. The sanctification part of who we are shows that we care about what God did to save us. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's bearing the fruit. He's the one that's doing yeah. all the good stuff. When that's not happening, the Bible says we are grieving the Holy Spirit. We are we are working against what God has done in us. So it should be, and I think that's the whole point of the parable. What's interesting is I think Jesus shows you when he says at the end, when he has the one guy who does nothing and who has no fruit in his life and has just basically you know, move backwards instead of forward. You remember what he did? He took his mind and he gave it to the one who had 10. And somebody said, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. That He already has 10. And Jesus says to one who has been given much more will be given. I think it shows you that God says faithfulness is more important than fairness. Yeah. And that's the act that the idea that we believe in him, therefore he does things in us. And truthfully, the- and truthfully too, that, that it's interesting because we all like that highlights our misunderstanding of the holiness of God. That when we say that's not fair, we really don't understand our own depravity and how far we are from, from this holy God. I mean, that's, you know, he, if, if he gives Jay's 10 times what he's given me, I mean, whatever he gives me is grace anyways. I mean, right. if you really think about it, there is no, I mean, fairness. I mean, if I don't want fairness, that's the that's last right. thing. Don't, God, please do not be fair with me. I do not, I never ask God to be fair with you. And I think that's a, that's a key part of understanding the atonement part of this is right. I mean, it is good to go back to the atonement and to think about how guilty you really are before a holy God. That's a good reminder and, and, and remembrance. You just can't hang out there and live only in that space, you also have to move and grow in your faith and grow in your connection with God. You have to move into the to the, to the sanctification part of salvation, hoping for one day the glorification, which will come yes, at, the, at the second coming. At the resurrection. Exactly. No, which is, you know, that's why he told the parable of the sower. I mean, it's all about a new creation. Something happens. And then fruit is a result of that. I mean, I, I believe it's inevitable because the more... You realize that the kingdom is here on earth and you're a part of it and Jesus is the king. It's kind of reminds me of Jeremiah, you know, despite all his persecution and he's looking at the culture and we look around. You you just can't help it. You have to speak. And, uh, you know, I made that analogy about, you know, from a political viewpoint, basically each side just shows you why the other side is terrible. And we, we're like left to pick a side, but what we should be left with is to know that we have the very solutions to life as far as from social to family to money and all the things that go wrong in Jesus, because he, he literally answers every single thing that you could ever imagine in his ministry. And so then yeah. I keep bringing up the same verse, but in John 20, he's like, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You think about all the ends of all the gospels. He's like, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go, make disciples of all nations. 
and and I'll clo- I'll give you the power. Yeah. I'll give you the power. And the last thing I want to say, because I said this in overtime, it's not that we're taking a passage where a lot of religious people are using that to sit around and wait for Jesus to set up his kingdom one day. There are plenty of passages, and we look forward to them. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back, and we will be raised imperishable, and we will live forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, this is what what this is all about. But in this particular circumstance, it's more about the Jewish nation recognizing him as king. And that was a problem, especially pre-resurrection. It it still is. And it still is. And it still is. But to to be fair, too, I mean, even some of the people, think about even his own disciples, whenever he was arrested— Nobody was standing there saying, I'm with this guy. You know, nobody, Peter wasn't there, you know, whenever they were beating Jesus saying, Hey, no, 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 I do know him. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Well, he like, denied him he, three times. He denied him three times. Yeah, and, he, th- and when he was trying to reinstate him, you know, he kept using the different word for love. Do you love me? And Peter was like, Well, I love you as a friend. But what I think is so great about Jesus is he didn't rebuke him and say, No, you never got it right. He was like, Let's just start there. And, and, I am your friend, you know, and move forward and you'll figure this out. And one day they're going to lead you to your own cross because you won't be able to speak about me. And it's so funny because what we're talking about here, I mean, just think about this. You like, what, what is it? He bowl it all down and what's he, what is he getting at? He's, he's essentially saying that the role of prophet, the role of priest, the role of King, the role of the temple, all, all of this, it's everything is rolled up in, so how is it? How, what is it? Where does all this end? Well, it ends in a person, a per, the exactly. person of Jesus. And if you think about like, it's so funny as we because uh, our little city is pretty, pretty uh, secular. And but what's awesome at our little church is that there are lots of people coming in who have tried the secular uh, progressive promise of this utopia. They've tried all that. And what they found is, is that it doesn't hold any water. It's a broken cistern. And so they're coming in, and it's so God is doing something here. I'm telling you, and but it's, it's a consistent theme, guys. Like we, we, they come in almost like pragmatic, like man, this what we're doing is not working. So we're open to try anything. And then as we walk with um, these people, it the, the the dividing line is this right here. When you get to the, the the answer is not a system, the answer is not a guru, the answer is not. A, a one and done experience. The answer is not special knowledge. The answer is not the right theology. The right the answer is in a person named Jesus. Like I'm telling you, it is weird, but that is the when that when, in the moment of the conversation when that becomes evident, that's when it's like it's time to separate who's real and who's not. And I think, man, how powerful is that? That the dividing line between all of this is in a person, not an idea. This is, these are not spiritual truths or principles. We are talking about an embodied reality of God in flesh. That is the anchor. That, that is, that's the litmus test. That's the, that is the, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega. That's all of it right there in this person of Jesus. And I think that's what he's really laying the foundation for right here in this right. parable. All right, so we're out of time. We'll uh, we'll pick this up in our overtime if you want to follow us over. Still much more to unpack, especially about the entry and the temple and the things we've been uh, introducing here. So if it's uh, blazetv.com slash unashamed if you want to follow us over to overtime. Thanks for listening to the Unashamed Podcast. 
Help us out by rating us on iTunes. And don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube and be sure to click that little bell to get notified about new episodes. And for even more content that you won't get anywhere else, subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash unashamed.